Welcome to This Week in Sparkling Water. My name is Joachim Eriksson, and I am the host of This Week in Sparkling Water. I was sort of sitting here, trying to gather my thoughts before pressing record, and it didn't go very well, and I feel less ready than normal to record this episode, but... But we'll see what happens. It's, um, this episode is a little bit unconventional. We are, um, not in the studio. There's no video with this episode. I'm in my car. We just got through the Christmas week over at work and, um, yesterday it started snowing like a mofo. And I was driving to work, and I was just sliding around on the highway, and I was kind of freaking out. And that was at 4 p.m., and then it just snowed all day. And then when I got off work at, like, 10 p.m., I was driving home, and it was... I was scared. Like, we even had employees that <clears throat> that were like, I can't go home, and, and management gave them a room. And they just stayed there. But I... But those employees were women. And I'm a man. So I wasn't offered a room because I'm a man. So uh, I get in my truck and there's a foot of snow on my truck. And I I get a trash bag and I... <laughs> this is, these are the different things that happened. <laughs> I got a trash bag and I got all the snow off of the windshield and the hood. And all the snow off of the windows. And then I pull out of the parking lot. And pulling out of the parking lot, there's this uh, downhill. It's super hilly in Grass Valley. So the first hill is right away just pulling out of the parking lot. And when I do that, this like perfect, thick, um, held together sheet of snow, like a foot thick, just, <laughs> just this flap of snow just slides off of the roof of the car and just covers the entire windshield. So I'm in the middle of the road driving and I cannot see <laughs> anything at all. And luckily that happened right away when I pulled out of the um, parking lot. And luckily that didn't happen on the highway or nothing. So I managed to just pull into a pull into a something and, and I shoved that off. And then, and then it was just dicey and I engaged a four-wheel drive and, and and this thing was echoing in my head that people always say that, like, I live on Highway 20 and they say that whatever happens, you can always get home and get out because the highway is always plowed. Like, that's the one thing you can count on. The highway is always going to be plowed. So I'm getting through town trying to get to the highway and through town was not plowed. And it's like, there's like a foot and a half of snow on the road and it's right at zero degrees Celsius, like right at freezing. So it's real unclear what's going on with this. Like if the liquidy bits are real frozen or or not. And when I get to the highway, there's just like, I'm looking at it and it's a weird looking surface because it looked exactly like a ski slope, like a freshly, I don't even know what that machine is called in English. The, um, I don't know what it's called in Swedish either, but... At a ski resort, the slopes in the morning, a machine will run over them and, and, um, flatten the snow. 
two where it's not powder. It's this other more resilient type of just even. It looks like it's been combed like a Japanese stone garden. And it's just like, whoa, there's like airplanes going above me. I wonder what's going on with that. And so uh, <clears throat> I'm pulling onto the highway. And I'm looking at this hardened snow. And I'm like, is this what they call plowed? Because this does not look plowed. And I'm kind of sliding around in it. And then from nowhere, the plow machine appears. And I'm still haven't merged onto the highway. So I just let the plow, I just let the, the guy pass me. And then I just roll up behind him. And it's perfect. And it's just like perfect black, beautiful tarmac to drive on behind the plow machine. And, um, it was the safest drive. And it's just like so fascinating and post-apocalyptic how we don't give a fuck about lanes anymore because it's a two lane highway, but, uh, we just went in the middle. He just plowed the middle. And, uh, and then I'm driving home and I'm driving behind him and it's beautiful. And then he pulls off in Nevada city and I'm like, fuck, what do I do now? Am I going to continue without him? And I did, and it was dicey. And then when I got home, I... Uh... Actually, this one more thing happened that was... The highway where I live, it's closed, and, and the only way to get onto the highway is to show that you actually live on it. So you have to show ID and a power bill. You have to show some sort of utility bill showing your address to prove that you live there. Otherwise, you're not allowed to go on the highway. And they're really adamant about it. Because there's like a highway patrol officer and a Caltrans truck and, and they got a bunch of people out there and they, and they care because they know that if they let someone on who doesn't live there, who, who fucking drives into a ditch, they are the people who have to go fucking get that person out of the ditch. So they don't want to let anyone through. So every time I'm trying to get back to my house, it's this argument because my house address is not on my license because I don't receive mail on my drive at my house. So I have a, a mailbox at the UPS store. So, um, the address on my driver's license is actually in town. It's not on highway 20. So I have to argue every time, but then, so I'm rolling up there and these dudes, there's like this young kid and he, and it's like dumping snow and it's like 11 PM right around freezing. And he's been standing out there for like 10 hours. I'm sure. Cause I've seen him like many times and I pull up, and he's like, oh, you were here earlier, which is a good way to start, because now I know he's not going to argue with me. And then at work, right at the end of the shift, I had the, all these people come in and order a bunch of Irish coffees. And well, honestly, OK, so this is the long version, since this is a podcast. <laughs> they came on, they come in and they just wander into the private dining room and just sit down because there's 11 of them. And it's like, bro, you can't just wander you can't just wander in and sit down anywhere, let alone in the private dining room that needs to be booked out. So they just sat down there as if they fucking owned the place, rudely. And I'm already peeved. So I go in there and I'm like, okay, here's some menus and I'm just going to let them do it because I don't care. And I give them some menus and they're like, yeah, just we just want drinks. And then this one lady is like, do you have an espresso martini? Can you make an espresso martini? And I'm like, ooh, I'm sorry. We only have like regular coffee. We don't have, espre we don't have an espresso machine. So we can't do that. We can do a, a lemon drop, which is a version of a martini, or we can do a cranberry martini. 
And then she's like, oh, okay. And then they order a bunch of Irish coffee. So I brew a bunch of coffee, which is why I brought this up. But then when I deliver the Irish coffees, I'm standing behind the one of the guys and I hear him loudly tell the story of like, and then I asked him for an, and then I asked the server for an espresso martini and he looked at me like I was an idiot, like I was from a different planet. And then I just walk around him and he can see that I'm right there. And then they all go completely quiet. And there's just like 11 people sitting there completely quiet in a room. And I'm just like quietly putting down Irish coffees in front of them. I was like, okay, great. That's not, this is not awkward at all. It's like, bro, I didn't look at you like you were an idiot. It's, I was looking at you like you were an idiot because you walked into this room the wrong way because you didn't fucking ask. So awkward. What is that sound? I don't even know if this works. Um, and then I thought it was so awkward to go back in there after I had caught him talking shit about me that I sent my coworker in there to do the rest of it. And, and then they fucking referred to her as a man and, and then made it super awkward and started apologizing a whole bunch. So it was just an all around bad time. But, the point is that I brewed all this coffee. So then at the very end of the shift, instead of um, pouring the coffee out, I've bought all these like glass cylinder thermoses on Amazon. It's just like a, it's just like a big glass cylinder with a bamboo screw top. And so instead of pouring that beautiful artisanal, um, freshly brewed coffee out from Remedy Roasters in Auburn, beautiful expensive coffee instead of pouring it out i pour it into my thermos and bring it home that's my new thing i do so when i'm rolling up on this guy at 11 p.m and he's been out there for like 10 hours i have a full thermos of freshly brewed coffee and he's like oh you were here earlier and i give him the thermos and it's like bro that's that's that 12th step stuff i talk about where it's like being nice to someone Doing something that's like actually a complicated, real favor for someone makes you feel so good. So I'm, I, I'm like, do you drink coffee? And I give him this thermos and he's like, oh no, you can't give me that. And I'm like, bro, take this thing. It's fucking cold out here. Actually, I go, I, it seems kind of cold out here. And he goes, 29 degrees cold. <laughs> And he's like a pimply 19-year-old kid, and he looks frozen solid. And I don't even know if he drinks coffee, and I don't know if he drinks coffee at 11 p.m., but honestly, he probably drinks energy drinks like a motherfucker all day. So coffee probably is fine. And even even if it's like just holding something hot when you're out there, dumping snow, I'm sure that's nice, you know? And he seemed to really be appreciating it, and he was like, you you giving me this whole bottle and everything? And I was like, yeah. Yeah, bro. And it's like, that's, again, that's not an act of actual charity. It's actually a very selfish act because me doing that for him makes me feel so good. It makes me feel like such a good person that that helps me stay sober. It's the only substitute we have for, for getting wasted. It's the only thing that makes us feel good when, when we're not putting chemicals and alcohol in our body. Made me feel so fucking good. And that's me, you know? 
That's a, it's a selfish act to give him that thing because that puts so much happiness in my heart. And I love that selfish act, you know? Being your brother's keeper. Ah, uh, anyway. <clears throat> so then I get home at midnight and me and Harvey are kind of hanging out and, and power goes out and it comes back and it goes out and comes back. And then at like 1 a.m. or something, it, it just dies and that's it. And we take out some camping gear and we got some lanterns and stuff and, and I had a, had a little helping of NyQuil cause it's been such a long, horrible Christmas week of just working at the hotel. Just a really, real doozy of a week. So, uh, yeah, I, um, I went to bed and the power was out and I was half hoping that it was just going to be back on when I woke up. So I was like, I'm not going to set an alarm. I'm just going to, I'm so sleep deprived. I'm just going to sleep forever. It's my day off tomorrow. And hopefully I sleep so long that the power is on when I wake up and, and I wake up at 1 PM. Just that is a young man's time to wake up, you know? That is not a very mature person's time to wake up, but that's when I woke up. And the power was not on, and Javi was not at the house. And it's like, no power, no heat, no hot water. Um, I look outside, and there's two feet of fresh snow all over my world. And my car is snowed in, and it's like, I can get out, because I drive a... 2021 Tacoma tank, you know, <laughs> but, but it's like, fuck. And it's like slowly going, just, I'm losing a degree of heat at the house with every hour and it's already really cold. And the worst part was that I didn't have any cell phone reception. So whatever happened, whatever happened to the power lines also happened to the cell phone tower. The fucking radio base station didn't make it. So I don't have any cell phone reception or internet on my phone. Which is a weird feeling. So I just like played Nintendo Switch until the battery died, hoping the whole time, the whole time just not, not really making a plan and just hoping that the power was going to come back on, but it didn't. <laughs> it definitely didn't. And then I even got my camping stove, like my little gas camping stove, and I just boiled 400 grams of water that I weighed out with my scale because my scale has a battery. So I boil up 400 grams of water and I weigh out, you know, 36 grams of Trader Joe's fair trade coffee and, and I get my Chemex out and I make a little bit of a perfect amount of pour over and I sit there on the couch with nothing because I didn't even have groceries because <clears throat> I was going to hit the, um, the grocery store yesterday after, after work, but but I could barely get home, so it wasn't, it wasn't time. So, um, so I just sat there and played Nintendo Switch until the battery died, and then I was like, fuck it. And so then I, I went into the, I was like, I, I guess I, we have to do this. I have to get, go into town, I guess, to get a little bit of cell phone reception, to, to text my mom and tell her that I'm alive, you know, to check up on my peeps. So I made this plan, like, I'm going to go to the post office and pick up all my Christmas packages because it's been a couple of days and I haven't gotten any of my Christmas gifts because I haven't had time. I've just been, you know, working late, closing up the restaurant every day, sleeping until noon, have to be there back there at 1, 1 p.m. just working, dude. 
and I haven't gotten my gifts. So I go to the post office or the UPS store and, and it's fucking closed. And, and then the second half of my plan is I'm going to go to the Holbrook and just sit at the bar and use my phone for a while and get like a nice warming bowl of soup and maybe, maybe a side of rice and just regroup and talk to my coworkers a little bit and shoot the shit and see what's a good plan, you know, cause I don't really know how stuff works. Like, I don't really know what's a good idea and what's not a good idea. Cause <clears throat> I don't want to waste a bunch of money and drive to a different city and get a hotel room if that's a, waste of time so i drive over to holbrook and as i'm rolling up there i'm realize i'm looking at all the stores on the main street where holbrook is and i'm realizing that nothing has power and all the traffic lights are dead so there's a certain it, so when you're driving and the lanes are gone because there's too much snow and the traffic lights are dead and there's a lot of traffic it's pretty it's pretty messy it's a little bit like the walking dead you're just a couple of zombies shy of a of a complete apocalypse there. And then I roll up on Holbrook and I see one of my my chefs just standing on the corner on the phone. I see Josh just standing there and I just yell at him like, "We don't got power, huh?" And he's like, "No." So then I just said, "Fuck it," and just kept going south. And I made it to Auburn. Got a little bit of Chick Fil A. And then I just drove around until I found a dead industrial district and uh, parked my car and was like, I guess I'll, I guess I'll record a podcast right here. I guess I'll record a podcast right here and, and I haven't showered today and I always shower before I record a podcast. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna drive down to Sacramento and stay with a friend for a few days, cause, cause I actually, right before recording this episode, I actually got, um, a call from Pacific Gas and Electric where this robot tells me that it's gonna be a while. I'm not gonna have power for a while. <clears throat> oh, and it gets cold. It gets cold at the house with no power. So yeah, let's, maybe we'll do a little, we'll do a water. So this is Recess Brand Peach Ginger, because this episode, we're doing peach. Ooh, peach ginger. It's 80% nothing, 10% peach, 10% ginger. Ooh, that's very light. This might be light and tart and delicious. Oh, I love that. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Mmm. Recess. That's a 9 out of 10 right there. Okay, next topic is that Joan Didion died this week. <clears throat> and um, I was thinking about it, and I was thinking about how it made me feel, and it made me feel sad, and I was thinking about all the things I could say that Joan Didion, you know, different ways that she made me think about different things and she made me do different things. And and then I thought about it and I think it's maybe interesting to take a step back and have a meta conversation and, and, and recognize that all the things I would say about how she influenced me, 
are really just me saying how important she is to me, which is really just a way of saying, making it about me and trying to communicate how big my sorrow is. Which is really just a sort of, I don't know, it's a very young, I, I associate it with a, it's a young person's game. Young people who, you know, when, whenever you're in, you're in grade school, there's always some, like through all your years of school, there's always some kid that dies at some point. You know, maybe you're in second grade, maybe you're in ninth grade, maybe you're in high school. At some point, someone that you know the name of that went to your school died. And when that happens, there's this sort of interesting, it's almost like a bell curve. It's almost like um, there's an event horizon where anyone who is really, truly close to that person does not have any control of how they feel. And they just feel really fucking sad and they might even be traumatized and their fucking life path has changed forever. But then as you get further and further away from the person, you get people that might be semi-close to the person who died. And for those people, they are a little bit outside of the event horizon. And for those people, depending on how mature they are, It's common for people to exaggerate how close they were to the person. Because there's something there. There's something we like there. In the drama of being able to say that someone that you love died. It's just one of the most archetypical stories in the life of a human. To be able to say that someone that I love died. Look at me. Feel sorry for me. Someone died and I loved them and they loved me and we were so close. And you know, when you're in fifth grade and someone dies, it's like, there's a lot of kabuki theater there. Because there's a lot of people pretending to be really close to that person. And then there's a lot of people who are really close to that person. And for the people beyond a certain event horizon, they have a little bit of control of their, of something. And they can modulate it and they can decide to turn up their own grief. And it's weird. It's weird that we do that, but we do that. And, um, I think in my life, I've been blessed in the sense that not a whole lot of people that I was truly close to died, but many, many acquaintances of mine have died. And I remember like, like when I was 15 and 16 or maybe 17 and stuff, I would hang out with Ingrid and I'd hang out with all these people listening to synth music, which is a sort of mod. It's related to the subculture that in Britain is called mods. And, um, it's just like a weird music. Everyone dresses all black and dye, you dye your hair black and you listen to blur. And, um, I was like, hang out with those guys and they did a lot of drugs. And then, and then more than one of them died. And <clears throat> when the first one died, I remember hanging out with Sebastian and being like, 
it was weird. I didn't know how to feel about it. But I decided to feel really sad about it. And then Sebastian called me out on it immediately and was like, bro, you weren't that close to that guy. You're doing this for attention. You're making this a bigger deal than it has to be. Because you want to... Yeah. And I mean, honestly, if I go down into my psychology in that moment, it's probably that prima facie, before any of the events, I just felt fucking sad. Like, I was just a sad person, always. I was just a sad, depressed, anxious little man. Boy. And I had no way of getting that out, getting that feeling out. And then when Hesa died, his real name was Tim, when he died, it was just an opportunity for me to just, like, act out sad. But I wasn't sad because he was dead. But it was fucking sad that he died because out of all those fucking crackheads, he was the, he was the one who was really beautiful. Like, he was just a beautiful soul and, like, really creative and really productive. And, and then he OD'd on heroin, you know? And, um, and I think I wasn't sad because he died because I didn't know him that well. I was sad because I was sad. And I needed something to explain my sadness with. I needed a reason to be sad. Because it's so fucking weird to just be sad for no fucking reason. But that's what it's like for me and that's what it's like for a lot of people. We're just sad all the time. And maybe that's like, yeah, that's why I like Phoebe Bridgers. <laughs> she has two, two separate songs where she just, it's just like, she just goes, I'm just so sad all the time. I think both the song Steamroller and the song Funeral has the line, I'm just so sad all the time. And in funeral, she goes, I'm so sad all the time. Always, always have been, always will be. And there's something peaceful in the resignation in that, you know? To just go with it, you know? And that's, that's, I think that's where I'm at. And when you resign to it, it goes away. It's weird. The sadness is the resistance to the sadness somehow. And once you just accept that you're just sad and you're just at peace with being sad, you're way less sad all of a sudden. <sighs> but Joan Didion died this week. Yeah. I think, yeah, God damn it. Do I want to just talk about all my friends that have died? Not really. My buddy Justin was a good friend of mine who died. Tom Brilliant was a good friend of mine who died. Yeah. God. I don't think I've ever said this on 
on the pod, but John Brilliant was the only man I've ever had sex with. I'd say we, we dated for a little bit. I don't know if that's the right word. I really cared about him. Really loved him as a friend. And then that was an act of political liberation where, yeah, I don't know, where we hooked up. But I don't think I treated him good. And I actually, <clears throat> John Brilliant died from lung cancer when he was 23 years old and, um, in the last year of his life, it's, um, he had lung cancer and he was treated and it came back and he was treated and it came back and, and I video called him a couple of times, but really, really I didn't do a good job and that really weighs on me if I'm being honest. And me and Carl Krauss talked about this recently, how both of us, we were young and we didn't have a solid idea of what to do or who we were or how to be a good person. So when a friend got cancer and got really sick, we honestly, if I'm being honest, we pulled away, both of us. And we talked about that recently and we both, we both agreed that, or Carl talked about it and I disagree with him, that Carl talked about how we just didn't, we weren't there for him and it's like, when a person gets cancer and he tried to reach out and he would email me and I would email him back a little bit, but I would drag my feet and I should have, yeah, God, that weighs on me. God damn it. It's one of those truly, truly meaningful failures of my life. Like there's so many things I feel so bad about that don't matter at all, but that's one that matters that he was dying And he wanted to reach out and he wanted to video call all the time. And I only video called him two, three times because he was back in America and I was still in China. Oh, God damn it. And then that's the thing, you know, like that's why none of these deaths, I've had many friends that died and I was always in a different country, you know? I'm in China and my friend in Sweden dies. I'm in China and Justin goes back to America and goes for a run and then he comes home and he feels weird after the run so he's in the living room and he pushes the coffee table off to the side to make space on the floor and he lays down flat on the floor and then he's just dead. And I'm in China and John Brilliant flies back to America and he gets lung cancer and then Yeah. And then John Brilliant, who was always someone who liked to write. I was writing a book, I said, but I wasn't really because I'm a lazy piece of shit. And he was writing a book and he wrote the first half and he sent me the, the draft to the first half of his book. And the working title was <laughs> A Hipster's Guide to getting cancer or a hipster's guide to surviving cancer or something like that a hipster's guide to cancer and he wrote the first half and then it killed him and he never got to write the second half and i read the first half and it was just absolutely incredible just like personal reportage descriptions of the hospital and the machine and the people and the experience 
and like John Brilliant's dad is <clears throat> a kind of kind of famous doctor who's the head of he was the head of Google.org for a couple of years, which is the ph philanthropy arm of Google. So they're big tech Silicon Valley Palo Alto people. So he clearly got the best care in the whole world, and and he. Yeah, and he was in these nicest hospitals in the world describing these really cutting-edge treatments and, and it didn't save him. And and then he, he sort of is weaving in all this other stuff of like how it feels and like he would dye his hair while dying and he would get tattoos and the feeling of your body being finite. The feeling of mortality philosophical write-ups woven in with these hospital visits, you know? Incredible writing. Incredible. It would have been such a good book, but the cancer killed him. And I, I kind of feel like the book was called A Hipster's Guide to Surviving Can <laughs> Cancer. Which is... Which is... Uh, yeah. Just sad. Yeah. Anyway. And now I'm just in some parking lot in Auburn. God. Something about thinking about all of that stuff makes me feel like I'm super lost in my life. <laughs> Maybe that means we need to drink another water. Oh, man. So this brand is Genki Forest Sparkling Water White Peach. Ooh, that actually smells real good. Yeah, that's way too sweet. Five out of ten. And then Joan Didion died this week, and, and um, here's the things I could say about Joan Didion. It's like, first of all, she's like, she's a writer, and she's the, she's the best American writer in the last hundred years, and, and she's a real writer's writer, and, and she, she wrote all these fiction books, but she's not so famous for her fiction books. She's famous for her nonfiction and her just stories. She was from Sacramento and she wrote Sacramento stories and she was a Sacramento person even though she moved to New York when she was 19 or something and she had lived most of her life in New York but a lot of it in California and blah blah blah. The point is that I think I moved down here. My uncle always told me Sacramento was a shithole. And when Matt and all my buddies moved down here It's um, and told me to move down here. I wouldn't, wouldn't have moved down here if it wasn't for Joan Didion. Because I think at some point there, after moving to Seattle, I committed to myself that I would never... I don't want to go to places... I don't want to live in places that I don't... that don't have a sense of beauty to me. You know, Seattle is beautiful to a lot of people, but it's not beautiful to me. And I, and Shanghai really had a lot of beauty to me. And that's why I was happy there. Cause I would walk around in the street and I would feel like it was beautiful. 
I would feel like the sunlight had this incredible, beautiful, orange, strange, dark color. And I thought it was beautiful. And then I had to go to Beijing for a job. And I lived in Beijing for a while and it had no beauty for me and I didn't want to be there. And I lived in all these places that I found beautiful and I lived in all these places that I didn't. And it was through the stories of Joan Didion that I found Sacramento to just be so painfully, beautifully normal. And it's just like this lower middle class city with nothing. There's nothing there. There's no culture. It's a city of millions of people with no culture. And people who live there don't even think of it as a city. They think of it as a, as a series of neighborhoods, as just a cluster of suburbs with no center. And people who live in Sacramento, they say that they say things like, I'm going into the city this weekend. And when they say that, they, they mean, San Francisco. They mean that they're going to drive two and a half hours south. They're going to drive two hours south to the bay. But in all of that, there's something beautiful in just the plains and the Sacramento Valley and just the winds, the epic, (laughs) the epic winds. And I mean, I'm pretty sure I fucking read some Joan Didion poorly into the microphone recently, like when Julie was visiting. So, um, yeah, but so that's a very like pretentious and ridiculous and infantile obsession with a writer. But the truth is that I got into her in a super unpretentious way, which is that I was introduced to Joan Didion by watching a Netflix documentary called Joan Didion, the center will not hold, which I very much recommend. It's beautiful. It's, um, a 2017 documentary. So I watched that and then, you know, that's the thing with writing. Some, I really do believe that writing is a, it is just a truly limited and very flawed and very, it is a difficult to approach medium. Text, text as entertainment is difficult to approach. So I do feel like oftentimes, when we try to read for pleasure, it's hard and it can be very helpful to be helped along with a little bit of audiovisual media. Like, <clears throat> I remember being 16 and watching the movie Fight Club and because I watched the movie Fight Club, that came up with a soundtrack in my head and a mood and a feeling and a color palette, a color palette of, of the sort of dirty green, dirty blue, like blue-green sepia, like sepia is yellow, but you know what I mean? Like just the the muted colors, it, just the, the color palette of the movie Fight Club with this sort of deadpan, matter-of-fact way of saying those things that are in the book said by Edward Norton in this flat, sardonic, you know, anti-establishment <laughs> tired way just like this tired skeptical uh, i'm rejecting everything voice so having heard that voice in the movie helped me along so that when i picked up the book i am actually reading the entire book in the voice of edward norton in my head and it makes the book way better so sometimes we can be helped along by some audiovisual media and i think that really helped me with fight club and then with joan didion you, you watch this 2017 documentary, which I highly recommend to everyone. It's an incredible, beautiful hour and a half. 
And it starts out with just her reading some of her own writing. And then her, I believe it's her nephew or her late husband's nephew or something who is like a sort of dilettante documentarian who just stumbles upon all of this because he happens to be Joan Didion's nephew. He interviews her and, and and they have these like kind of failed exchanges where they don't even really understand each other, but there's something incredibly beautiful to it. And, and she has Parkinson's and she's a little bit falling apart, but she reads her own writing and it's just so beautiful. And her voice is so flat and perfect and beautiful. And then when you watch the documentary and have that voice, you can then pick up her writing and then her writing comes through in this beautiful fucking way in your head with her own voice. And it's just, you know, in the year of our Lord 2021, soon to be 2022. Oh my God, you're going to be listening to this in, in 2022, huh? Um, in the year of our Lord 2022, there's a lot of fucking TikTok out there, you know? There's a lot of micro video that really, you know, there's VR porn. Wherever you look, there's VR porn, you know? So the battle for your attention is, it's tough. And thinking that you can pick up a novel and that, and read for pleasure, it's, it's, it's kind of unrealistic. And, and I do think that, yeah, sometimes it helps you along. And, and so I got into Joan Didion in the most unpretentious way ever, which is I watched a Netflix thing. And then after watching that, and I just found it so captivating. I started watching it late at night and I just ended up staying up super late because of it. Which is this very specific feeling. There are many time, there are many moments I, I remember discovering something, discovering a person, like an artist or something late at night and then just getting completely wrapped up in how incredible it all is and feeling like, how have I never seen this before? I remember when I found the rapper XXX Tentacion on YouTube. And it was like 1.30 a.m. And I had to go to bed and be at work the next morning. And it's 1.30 a.m. And I stumble upon one video. I think the first video I stumbled upon was... I spoke to the devil in Miami and he told me everything would be all right. Which is not even a real song. It's not even on Spotify. It's not even released on anything. He just made these like weird minute and a half things. And the only way to listen to it is that it's on YouTube and it's paired up with video of like an anime like some anime where it's raining the whole time and it's an incredibly beautiful song and he just has this like it's just some some of that stuff just fascinates me how like you get these rappers that are clearly actually from the hood and they're clearly actually disenfranchised and uneducated and they like came from nothing and have nothing and they have these like violent backgrounds and they're you know i mean he died from someone fucking shot him because it's ganglands you know but he also had this like incredibly pretentious poetry angle to it where he had clearly just read a bunch of poetry and and it's just that's i mean it can be so beautiful when you take that re those real experiences of pain and violence and you clothe them in a little bit of, you know, I don't know. The second coming, you know, that poem, the second coming. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. So Joan Didion died this week, and it's like, I knew that she was going to die, and, and um, I've, I've talked about this a little bit recently, how I've now spent a year trying to sell my novel and communicating with different agents, and I really had this feeling of urgency that I found very, I found it very difficult to explain it to people, because there shouldn't be a sense of urgency, but I had these two reasons, and the two reasons were that to have done a good job, I just wanted... The, the first reason was this weird thing that I've explained in the past, that that in the fictional universe of the novel, it's set in the future. And some of the things that happen in the future that are treated, that are talked about, are... There's a description of the 2022 Winter Olympics, which now happens in a month and a half. So I just wanted to publish it in 2021 so that that was actually in the future. Because if I publish it after the fact, then that's fucking weird to me. And then the other thing is that I just really wanted to publish this novel and just buy one copy for myself, sell zero copies, publish it, buy one copy, hold it in my hand, and then put it in an envelope and just ship it to Joan Didion before she died. <laughs> it's so silly. Because, like, she's clearly not going to read it, but... It's just something I wanted to do, you know? And... I just wanted to do it to feel like I did that. Because not doing it means not even trying, you know? And having tried, at least having tried, is a peaceful feeling. And failure is, failure is completely acceptable as long as you tried. Which is why I had this sense of urgency and I wanted to publish the novel so I could send it to her. <clears throat> and now I won't be able to do that. This episode is such a, such a downer. <laughs> it's so funny. Oh God. Anyway, so funny. Anyway, so I, so when she died that night, I came home from work and first of all, a lot, a lot of people know that I'm like low key obsessed with Joan Didion. So a lot of people texted me about it and, and Julie even texted me and didn't even say it. She was, she, Julie just texted me. I'm sorry for your loss. <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, oh God, I'm so lame. Julie just texted me, I'm sorry for your loss. Oh man. What's better than the sugar free sugar free Arnold Palmer at Chick-fil-A? So fucking good. Um Yeah. So I came home from work that day and I, I put on the documentary again. And um, it was weird because I, um, I watched the documentary and then the documentary, I mean, back, back in 2017, I watched it and then I read a bunch of Joan Didion and, and then I 
she really sold me on Northern California and Sacramento and this area, and that's why I moved down here. But then after moving down here, I never really revisited her writing so much. I did a little bit, but not not so much, and I never rewatched the documentary. And then the documentary is all about like how her family traveled with the Donner Party through the Donner Pass, which is like this famous sort of crazy event where it was this 1800s, 1880s or something. This party of people were trying to find a new path to California, so they walked through this pass that we now call the Donner Pass, and and they got 80 meters of snow that that winter, like an insane amount of snow. So like these super, super, super tall trees um, were... We know how much because they would chop down the trees at what was to them ground level. But then when the snow melted, you could see that they had chopped down the tree 80 meters up. Um, so just like a completely phantasmagorical amount of snow. And the funny thing is like now I... Yeah, I mean, this is what I'm saying now is an exercise in that thing I was describing of trying to make my own importance in the relationship to the thing more important. Like I'm trying to elevate my own importance here and elevate my own, the importance of my connection with this thing. Because like now I live, you know, 20 minutes from the Donner Pass. I live an hour from Sacramento, but I live up in the mountains by the Donner Pass and... <clears throat> And it's like I'm watching that and the, the infantile part of my brain makes me feel more important when I watch that. Because I'm like, oh, I'm really doing this, you know, I'm really living this. I'm really doing what Joan Didion is telling me to do. Bro, I tell you, man, I am like the perfect cult member. You know, I pretend like I'm a cult leader, but I'm the perfect cult member. And it's by sheer luck that I've never actually crossed paths with any even sort of faintly charismatic actual cult leaders. Because I would join immediately. All I want is like direction and narrative and a sense of drama. And I will swallow anything, you know, torture. I was going to say something gross, but yeah, I don't know. This episode is kind of a downer, huh? All right, let's do one last water. <clears throat> so peach, this is signature select peach cream, peach cream. I, I don't exactly know. Peach cream flavored sparkling water. Is that what it says? It's completely dark in here. Ooh, peach cream flavored sparkling water beverage. Ooh. You know how I feel about sparkling water beverages. You know what they say? Yeah, never mind. Oh, that does smell like a popsicle, like an ice cream. Oh yeah, that is so disqualified, but also delicious. Not gonna score it. Tastes exactly like an ice cream. Um. So the last thing I wanted, uh, yeah, no, no score for that one. The last thing I wanted to talk about is like, <clears throat> this is. Pr I mean, it's crazy because 
I do this podcast and sometimes I sit down and I talk for an hour about something that's like super personal to me and I feel like it's good in the sense that it is exactly what I want it to be and I finally get to talk about the thing I really want to just get out there and just get and and just um record a thing I think about a lot that I just want to record so I can stop thinking about it. And then I do that and then afterwards I always have this feeling of like that was good and now I'll never be able to do that again. And it's so crazy that I'm on episode, I don't know, 68. And I now have a thing that I can't believe I've never talked about this before, which is daydreaming. Because I'll tell you right now, dude, is someone coming? There's like headlights scanning over my car. Are the cops here? Uh... I'll tell you that I daydream a lot. And I think that the daydreaming is an expression of me feeling small and having self-esteem issues. And me wanting validation and me wanting the world to look at me and say that I am good and that I am worth something and that I'm special. Cause these, are, cause the daydreams are usually like, I'm gonna say this and this is like, I say a lot of things on this podcast that are really, really embarrassing and that are super private and personal and like just truly humiliating, like things that no one should ever say for their own just, I don't know, should we not say them? For some reason, I, I'm obsessed with this idea of if I say the most embarrassing thing, then then that will take its power away. But so this, what I'm about to say here is all of this is incredibly embarrassing. Like in the big pantheon of embarrassing things I've said on the 68 episodes so far of this podcast, this one is up there. Like this whole thing I'm going to say now is up there because like, look, just if you start really simple and practical, for example, 10 years ago when I was in university, I'm in college in Lund. <clears throat> in my mid-twenties, I just always fantasized and daydreamed. I would, I was bored. I was a little bit depressed. I was back in Sweden. Everything felt really, really boring and colorless back in Sweden after having lived in Shanghai for four years. And I felt really, really like I had no way of standing out or being interesting or being special. And this super, super immature part of me that just wants to be special really struggled with that. And so I would sit in class bored, lectures, I would sit in the lecture hall and dude, I would just daydream endlessly about something dramatic happening. Like, oh, I can't even, it's like really hard for me to even form these words because it's so fucking embarrassing. I'm really struggling to face this and say it out loud. It's funny because it, Asher and me were talking about how, <laughs> Asher and me were talking about how he, he had this big problem with his family and his, his fiance and him are getting married and her family is anti-vaxxers. So they had to make the wedding really small because they're not vaccinated because blah, blah, blah. If you want to have a big event, everyone has to be vaccinated. And if they're not, you have to be less than 50 people. <sighs> So because of his crazy anti-vaxxer in-laws, 
excuse me, he had to uninvite 200 people, this whole big story. So then he flew down to the South Island in New Zealand to, to, to spend a few days with them and meet up in person and try to have a diplomatic, real conversation about these things. And and he goes down there and they don't talk about it. <laughs> and he cracks me up so good because I relate to that so much. Because everything with my family is like, everything with my family is, I don't know. It's as if my family doesn't. It's not they who have things that they want to say that they don't say. It's just me. I don't know. Maybe they do. I have things I want. Like with my dad, frequently I go over to my dad. Like in the last 15 years of not living in Sweden so much and not seeing him so much, there's been many times when I visited Sweden and I go and I see my dad and as I'm going in there, I'm like, I have a real thing where I like want to hear the sto his stories. Like I want to know about him. I want to know like, you know, bad things that happened to him and stuff. But then I just don't, I just go and I sit there and it's like, it's like, and that, that's why I was reminded of this because the, the inability to face things and then the inability to bring stuff up and the inability to actually say things out loud is it's a crazy because it's not courage it's not a lack of courage it's a different thing it's a different I, we need a different word for it because it's just something else it's just this like conservatism it's just like this act of repression unrepressing things it's just so hard so asher goes down to the south island and spends all these days with his in-laws and his fiance, and they're all there and they have all these meals together and blah, blah, blah. And they never bring it up. They never bring up how they have this enormous problem that they're all dealing with where the anti-vaxxer in-laws are, are fucking up the whole wedding ceremony. And they never talk about any of it. And it's the whole reason why I went down there. And it's so fascinating to me. And I've done that so many times with my dad and, and my dad and me have had like three real conversations in my life ever, you know? And they were usually like weirdly, like me, me and my dad had <clears throat> everything I know about him is from three conversations we, we ever had about that happened at like between like 2 a.m. and 4.30 a.m. while we were splitting a bottle of whiskey. Like we had conversations that at those times drunk together where he would be like, yeah, this is what my childhood was, you know? Like they put me in an orphanage and no one fucking, no one fucking adopted me. So my parents had to take me back. And when they, they took me back from the orphanage, my dad told me that he didn't want me, that he was disappointed that no one else adopted me. And those things are bad things, you know, like that's a hard thing to say out loud. And that's the thing you can only say out loud at 3.30 a.m. when you're drunk. <sighs> because if we didn't repress those things, they would destroy us. It's the truth, you know? That's why it's hard to say. It's hard to say because we put it in a box. But the box is for our own safety, you know? If the box didn't exist, we'd be dead. The fact that we have those boxes, those fireproof boxes with the heavy lid that we can put our bad experiences in, the fact that we have those boxes is probably why we're alive. 
but that heavy, heavy lid is so hard to open. Lifting that lid is... <sighs> God damn it. Okay, so here we have one more of these heavy lids here that I'm trying to face now about the daydreaming. So in college, I would sit in these lectures and I would have these daydreams about how there's like maybe 50 students in there and we're sitting in this big sort of like amphitheater arena style. Um, I guess that's kind of normal. I guess that's sort of what colleges are like in the US and in movies and stuff too. So just big halls like that, big lecture halls. And I just wanted like something to happen that made me seem special. Like I wanted some Chinese person to walk in and just like scream at me and like beat the shit out of me. Or like some girl, some like hot girl. And I wanted everyone to be so impressed that I speak Chinese. And I wanted everyone to look at me like, oh, so he's like, oh. yeah. And that's the feeling I want. God. I just want that feeling, you know. I just want to be special. And I wish I didn't want that. Because being special is not good. It's better to just be healthy and normal and to just build a good life. But yeah, <clears throat> when I think about it like that, it's, it's true that it's the same thing that I frequently talk about on the pod, which is like, that feeling of wanting to be special is really just an expression of loneliness again. I have, I'm lonely and I don't have enough friends and I don't have enough connections and I feel disconnected. And the way I act, the way my brain acts out there is that it wants me to be special in this like super dramatic, like famous person way. Where I want like a famous person to come in and, ye and yell at me. And then I want everyone to look at that and be like, oh wow, he's friends with a famous person. And they seem to be having some sort of drama. And you know, that's the thing. Like, all of these um, daydreams, they're often things that are, like, embarrassing. Where any normal person who actually experienced any of these things that I daydream about, that I wish happened to me, would be embarrassed. Because it's these, like, overly dramatic things of, like, someone coming in and and standing walking around on the backs of everyone's chairs and throwing something at me and yelling at me in a foreign language and it's like normally if that happened to anyone to a normal or anyone bordering on the least bit shy they'd be embarrassed to be the center of attention in an embarrassing scenario like that but for me I have this sense of desperation to where that's what I want. I would rather take humiliation than invisibility. You know? It's crazy. The one thing that ever happened to me that... So, okay, maybe I should just first... Like, other examples is like, whenever I work in restaurants, I just feel like... An, it's easy when you work in a restaurant to just feel like a worker and an invisible person. And to feel like you're nothing and you're and you're not special and then you want... And then I exist in this context of coworkers, and then I just want all the coworkers to be impressed with me. And I want it to happen by like, I want a bunch of Swedish people to come in and just 
be cool and talk to me in Swedish. And then I want everyone to be impressed that I speak Swedish. And that's very, very, very embarrassing to say. But that's what it is. Or Chinese. Or I want a literary agent to come in and sit at the bar and offer me a fucking contract, you know. Or I want Billie Eilish to come in and like, you know, ask for me by name to be her server, you know. <laughs> uh, oh, God. It's weird because I wanted to have a, I wanted to say all of my daydreams out loud because I think about them a lot, a lot, and I wanted to say them out loud so that they go away. But even though I think about them a lot, a lot, and I spend a lot of time in a state of daydreaming and fantasizing, it's actually very hard for me to recall them. And it's a little bit like waking up from a dream and how the dream was this enormous fleshed out universe and this enormous experience that was so immersive and had so much detail. But once you wake up from it, it's very fleeting and it all goes away and you don't remember any of it. And you can literally forget the entire thing immediately when you wake up. It has a little bit of a quality like that where I can't actually, like, even though, like, especially when I felt bad, like, when I worked at that sushi place for six months, I think I probably had daydreams about that place in that setting, wanting to impress those people who looked at me as I was a lo as if I was a loser and I couldn't do it properly. Those people who had like an extra, extra negative view of me, that's where I was obsessively daydreaming even more because I just wanted some validation and I just feel wanted to feel a little bit special and a little bit good and I wanted them to be impressed with me. So that's in that scenario, I probably daydreamed the most, you know? And so I probably was immersed in a daydream like 15 times a day for those six months of working there. But now I can't actually really recall what those daydreams were more than I'm guessing it was something like I was always daydreaming that a big group of Chinese people would come in and that I would bring in all this money to the business because they really respected that. And then they would ask for me to serve them specifically because they were like my friends and they would spend a lot of money and the restaurant would make a lot of money and, and everyone would think I was really cool because we would do it our way and it would be good and it would be because of me and everyone would have to admit that I was pretty cool because I felt like a fucking loser and I just wanted everyone to be forced to admit that I was pretty cool oh. but so the only thing that ever happened to me in reality that was like a little bit like one of these daydreams in a lot of ways, like in setting and sequence of events and everything, is that it's one time. Okay, so background to understand this story is that when I lived four years in Shanghai, I dated this girl and <clears throat> her Chinese name was, her government name was Huang Pei. And her English name that she went by was Little Punk, LP. And she got that name because someone called her that once. Someone called her, someone, some guy in a band looked at her and was like, oh, you're a little punk, aren't you? And then she was like, that's cool, so I'm going to make that my name. And so she was in a band, and she was like, yeah, I mean, Jesus, we could do three episodes on her, but, but little punk was... 
this very short, very strange person that I've re later realized that she just pretty much had some undiagnosed mental health stuff going on and, and she was always in the bars. She didn't drink much and she didn't like doing drugs, but she was always in the bars and she was always out and she was always social and she was always talking and she was in bands and she made music and she played a couple of instruments and she wrote some poetry books and, and she was just this sort of larger than life character. And she referred to herself as the best mosh pitter in Shanghai three years in a row. <laughs> anyway, so because she was like that and because she was always in the bars and because she spoke English and all that stuff, there was a lot of news articles about her, like little write-ups in travel magazines and in different, just different news mag journals, just different. There was a lot of, there was little tidbits about her because, and this is really just an indictment of how foreigners decide to, and cause, and it was always like in not Chinese because Chinese, she wasn't famous in a Chinese sense in any way, I think. Um, but, but foreigner journalists in China had this like extremely skewed way of understanding China where they, sometimes people call it taxi driver journalism, where they just hang out with other foreigners and they go to foreigner restaurants and eat foreigner meals. And then their only interaction with Chinese people or real China and they have sort of bad, they speak a little bit of Chinese, but not great. And they're mostly their interactions with actual Chinese people is taxi drivers because they take taxis everywhere. And then they talk to the taxi driver and then he will talk about something in society. And then they will feel like, Oh, I'm really, I'm really getting close to a real Chinese person here during this 25 minute cab ride. And the cab driver will tell them some big thing about the economy or like some concept or some face, famous person or something. And then they'll write that into a news article. And so people refer to that as taxi driver journalism because it's like, it's a very, very shallow way of understanding China and you, there's lots of biases that you end up with there. And taxi drivers are really just bored people who make shit up. Taxi drivers are like me, you know, like they're full of shit. Like they just want to talk to kill time and they're just talking out of their ass. And what they say about the economy maybe might not be as meaningful as a, an economist or, I don't know. I don't know how to criticize taxi driver journalism perfectly, but those are the ideas. And then how little punk got a lot of media attention was similar. Because she's the least average Chinese person ever. She's the least like representative. People would write news articles about her as if they're writing about like Chinese culture and Chinese famous people and, and stuff. But really they're just writing about someone who has like really, really severe undiagnosed mental health issues and saying, cause she was very dramatic and very crazy. And, and so, yeah. So one example for, for example, is that there was actually a news article that I just came across one day in Swedish about little punk expressing which is one of Sweden's four newspapers. Expressen wrote a article about her and this other rocker dude that she had been dating. And in the article that I didn't read, there was a description of how the guy that she had been dating, who was now her ex, he, they were both in different rock bands and blah, blah, blah. And, 
and the rocker had on stage shoved a glass beer bottle up his butt. That's described in this article in Swedish. And they're trying to tell this like cool new side of a Chinese society of like how there's this subversive. Yeah, that's the, that's the thing that's not true. A news article about Lil Punk was always a news article about how China isn't all this like repressed monolithic society. There's actually this subversive punk subculture thing that's very different and very cool. And, you know, yeah, the thing is that there isn't. The thing is that there's only like 20 people out of 1.3 billion that are like that. But so I sent that news article to my mom because I was a, I didn't care enough about how to curate an image to my mom and how to tell my mom things that would make her happy. So she didn't like it. You know, I sent her the Swedish language article from Swedish media about this girl. And I'm like, this is the girl I'm dating. And in the article, she seems like a complete fuck job. And, and, and her boyfriend shoved a bottle of beer up his butt on stage. And my mom goes, well, that's not exactly the type of girl that you want to know that your son is spending time with. You know, like she wasn't overly dramatic about it. She just wasn't like, she just wasn't like happy about it. Like it's not something that's like, she wasn't impressed. You know, cause I said it like, look at me. I'm so special. Aren't you impressed with me that I'm dating someone that there's an, a news article about in Swedish? So me and little punk were, were soulmates there for a couple of years, but, but, um, yes. So that's the background you need to know for this thing. <laughs> this thing that happened that I'm, this story is actually the craziest thing that's ever happened to me. And it's insane if I've never told the story on the podcast before, but I don't think I have. But so that's the background. While living in Shanghai, I, I um, dated Lil Punk. And Lil Punk was always written about by Westerners. That's the background you need to know. And then, you know, after leaving Shanghai, I went to Sweden for two years and studied. And then I went to Beijing and studied. And then I graduated. And then I moved to Beijing and worked for the Swedish Chamber of Commerce. And then I met Megan, who I would later marry. And then Megan and me moved down to Hangzhou from Beijing. And then this thing happened in Hangzhou. So in Hangzhou, I'm running a little company, a little wine import company with a French guy. And Megan is working at the big museum. Hangzhou is an incredibly cultural city with like more museums per capita than anywhere in China. And just like an incredible concentration of just like wealthy people that bring all of their art to this one place. And it's just like an incredibly visually beautiful place with incredibly educated, literate, cultured people. So at the big museum, they had a lot of money to do different things and they would bring in, they would do events and she worked there with events and stuff. And then they did this one event where they brought in a French guy photographer and he was going to show his photos that he had taken while traveling China. He'd lived in China for a long time. He was getting some traction, getting some attention. So the museum makes an, puts together an event around him where they're like, they're on stage. They're showing his photos in a slideshow and then there's a Q and A afterwards. That's the event, right? So I'm in the audience 
and there's like 200 people in the audience, 200 Chinese people. And the French guy doesn't speak any Chinese, so they're doing it all in English. So they start with the slideshow of showing his photos. And my wife, fiance at the time, is interpreting, doing simultaneous interpretation. Is that what it's called? Um, he will say something and she will interpret it into Chinese because my fiance, Megan, she had incredible Chinese, much better than mine. So she's on stage, the French guy's on stage, and some sort of MC interviewer is on stage, right? So they go through the photos, and with each photo, he explains a little bit of what it is, you know? He's showing this, like, weird new side of China, he thinks, with his photos. And then, you know, 30 minutes into the event, we're looking at these photos, and she had, dude, what is that animal out there? There's, like, a huge hare, huge rabbit in this parking lot. Anyway, 30 minutes into this event, he's like, he shows this photo of a fully naked Chinese lady with her pussy out. And he's like, this is little punk. She's this girl I interviewed and took a lot of photos of in Shanghai. And then my wife, <laughs> who hasn't seen the photo beforehand, but knows that I used to date little punk, she has to not <laughs> she has to not react and she has to just stand there and interpret it into Chinese and just be like this is little punk <laughs> and it's like yeah I, I it's just it's just so funny it's just so funny so she's so like, I'm looking at her on stage and her eyes twitching, you know, because she's trying not to like scream at me jealously. And instead she has to like look at a naked picture of my ex and maintain composure and yeah. And it's such a good example of that because like that French guy had no idea what he was doing. And then he clearly just... Bumped into Lil Punk the same way everyone bumped into Lil Punk and, and then took a bunch of photos of her and yeah. Anyway, but so that was, uh, an actual thing that happened to me that was the closest of anything to, um, what the daydreams are. Cause the daydreams are always like in a big context where there's an audience because, because I feel disconnected and want like, my loneliness is expressed. As me thinking that what I want is an audience. Really, I just want a friend. But so there's an audience and a thing happens that makes, makes it clear to everyone that I'm important. And that I'm special and that I've had special and important experiences. And that's probably what the whole podcast is. It's just me flailing and trying to convince everyone that I'm special and have had special and meaningful experiences. It's so crazy to me that I'm sitting here and I'm trying to talk through what my daydreams are, but... Yeah. I mean, these days, it's a lot of stuff where it's like... I feel depressed and I just want someone to come in and just shove a gun in my mouth, you know? Because then 
everyone will see that I'm, that there's a sense of drama. And honestly, Lil Punk was like that, where I would have dinner with 20 people, and we'd sit at a long table, a bunch of French people, a big mix, whatever, everyone's girlfriend, 20 people, and Lil Punk would just barge in and just yell at me and make this big scene and make everyone have to, like, everyone, you would just be forced to be this by, like, everyone else were forced to be this bystander. And she would scream at me about some shit in our relationship. And she just did, and it was so attractive to me because it was that thing that I daydream about where it's like, finally, I get to be the center of attention. And a- any normal person would think it's super embarrassing. And people would say that. People would be like, you two should be embarrassed of yourself. Like, you guys are taking your dirty laundry and putting it out here in front of everyone. And it's just like, it's boring to everyone else and it's embarrassing to you. But we didn't think it was embarrassing to us because we had this pathological need to be special and to be the center of attention. So we would scream at each other in front of everyone and be and 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 go through the entire fight, you know, all the arguments back and forth of all the things that had happened. And she'd do crazy things, you know, she'd do crazy things she'd like. I'd break up with her and she'd break into my house and clean my whole house and then in the middle of the night while I'm sleeping and then sit in the living room and set her own hair on fire. You know? Stuff where it's like you need to be medicated. And then years and years later, because I do talk to her every once, once a year, you know, because we do know that we're definitely still soulmates. We talk once a year and now she's on a bunch of medication and maybe she's doing better. She was like me in the sense that, man, she was low functioning. Like she had such a creative fire and she just created and created and created, but she never made any money. She was just like, she had no money ever. And she would make music album and be in all these bands and all the album, all the bands put out albums and poetry collections. And she published all the shit and did all the shit and did all this shit. And it's like she had about $40 in her bank account. I remember being broke. This I feel like I have said on the podcast, but I'll say it in every episode. It's like the most beautiful thing that ever happened. The most beautiful act of charity ever was like I was broke this one time in Shanghai. Meaning that like I was working as a teacher just a few few days a week and making a little bit of money enough to survive because I was eating super cheap food in China, like a dollar, a dollar per meal type dinners and just like being a dilettante and being lazy and being a young person partying and you know my mom would give me a hundred bucks every year and this one time I was just broke I just ran out of money and I needed money for something and I don't remember what but but I remember little punk going to her bank account and she had like four hundred dollars four hundred quiet in her bank account which is about fifty bucks and she like withdrew all four hundred and gave it to me and it was just like so sad so beautiful sometimes i would give her a little bit of money and then i remember this one time after we broke up we were in a bar and i would just do it because i like because it's good you know i had more money than her and my mom gave me the money and i didn't even earn the money so it's good for me to give her some money and this one time in a bar after we broke up i like gave her some money and she was like so embarrassed and i realized that i'd done it like in front of people 
and I realized that I'd just done it out of habit in this way that really didn't work. Oh, God, and it was bad. She, like, didn't take it. And I was so embarrassed for her, and I was felt bad that I embarrassed her, and it was just... Ugh. Awful. You know, one big thing that the daydreaming is, is like, it's with music. But I think music, I think that one is more universal. I think that, I don't know, because no one ever talks about this, but I think this is something everyone does, where like, you're driving and you're listening to music and you just sort of fantasize about a whole scenario of like where you're in the music video and you're meeting the artist and you're singing it together with the artist and you come up with some whole thing where maybe the lyrics are part of your, like, the lyrics are good to you. The lyrics are cool. They make sense to you. They have an impact on you because they are somehow compatible with some, the narrative of what your actual life is or whatever. And, you know, like I imagine I'm at work and I'm listening to Billie Eilish and, and I imagine that I'm at work and, and the cops come in and it's just like, I get arrested while singing a Billie Eilish song to them. And if that actually happened to anyone in reality, they would be embarrassed. But for me, it's just like, at least then I would feel special, you know? Dude, is there someone here? Oh God, so scary. God. Okay, I locked the car. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know. I think I have to call it there. I gotta go to Sacramento now. I love you guys. Thank you for listening.